when we are cultivating knowledge about others, when we are cultivating knowledge about those who constitute risk or those who constitute threat, we need to be incredibly judicious about the ways that we do that, and we need to be very transparent about how those operations are occurring. Okay, welcome to the third episode of the INC podcast, Zero Infinite. I'm in the studio in the um, University of Applied Sciences here in Amsterdam with Geert Lofink. Welcome. And we're talking today about list technologies. And we do so because of a very important publication that has just come out, if we may say so ourselves, at the INC. The 22nd edition of Theory on Demand, which is a study by Kenneth Werbin called The List Serves Population Control and Power. It's already a couple of years old, but it's still so important to talk about, well, everything that he writes about in the book. And we're going to start listening to Kenneth himself. Uh, I talked to him on Skype from Toronto. So the list serves knowledge and power, and it has for a very long time. Uh, so as the anthropologist Jack Goody in his work uh, showed us, the first writings and the first recorded knowledge were in fact lists. He looked at uh, ancient Sumerian, Mesopotamian, and Assyrian cultures and concluded that lists operate as intellectual technologies and they have managerial, organizational, and lexical powers. But at the same time, when it comes to lexical powers, when it comes to the idea of thinking of a list and how it helps us carve out knowledge, they also have paradoxical and contradictory dimensions. So the list at once calls into reality classes of people, populations, and things, and categories of knowledge, but at the same time as calling them into reality, they also call into question the class or the population or the list of things themselves, right? So power and knowledge are deeply entwined. Following on the work of Foucault, we know that naming, labeling, classifying, deciding on criteria for inclusion and exclusion are fundamental to the essence of power and what power is. And that's why knowledge and power are so deeply intertwined. And so we see that from the work of Jack Goody that as intellectual technologies, lists operate as very, very powerful tools, very powerful tools for deciding who is in, who is out. And that's primarily my interest in lists. My book that I've written is all about lists of people and how they've been used in power contexts. The list can also be operationalized or take on the role of an apparatus of security or an instrument of policing. Right. So the, the example that I talk about in, in the book that's very, very uh, critical to understanding this is the Nazis and the ways that the Nazis use the list, not only as a way of deciding who was or was not a Jew or other or undesirable, but also as an instrument of policing that when wielded in the hand of a Gestapo stormtrooper, acted as a key instrument of security, as an apparatus of security in the way that Foucault uh, talked about it. So here we uh, have Kenneth really laying out the grounds of what his work is about. And I kind of want to go into the next clip immediately. 
And then we can talk a little bit here in the studio about um, list technologies. The other one is um, by Nikos Voyatsis. He wrote uh, one edition of the INC long forms called The Effect of the List. And in it, he kind of departs from a librarian point of view and talks about how lists are technologies of order and classification. Uh, it really triggers my interest to see uh, how the construction of the list affects the act of information collecting and storing and describing and even preserving through the enforcement of order, actually. But I think it's interesting to look at order in that sense, how it survives through the list as an uh, ideological construct, an outcome of ideologies yeah, or that deal with information as a commodity, an attempt to indeed uh, force effectiveness and productivity within this uh, economical system, actually, that is constructed out of tons of information, classified information. But I think uh, if, again, we go back to the basic principles of HTML, for example, we can see already uh, that the list is not, does not only exist in the front end, it's really part of the DNA of the web. We can find, for example, in the proposal of Timberis Lee, the element of the list, the LI, as UL or OL, the ordered lists or unordered lists, which are indeed part of the syntax. And I think it's interesting because it really shows the significance that the list has as a design form for the web. We see that yeah, the web has really started with a nature which is based upon listing techniques and listing technologies. Moreover, information of the web is really classified. So the, the world of information is really the world of ordered information. But it's classified under standards that are nowadays are defined by really huge information institutions, globalized corporations, the ones we can call online giants in a way. Companies like Google are the classifiers indeed with a capital C. So the way they impose the organization of information cannot be bypassed. And they create a web that is indeed a normalizing medium through standardized classifications, uh, which indeed affect how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves, etc. I think we invested a lot in criticizing the content of information, but of course the structures through which we access this content, I think, are equally yeah, valid to be criticized, and sometimes they're really taking also for granted. This was Nikos uh, talking also on Skype from Athens. Geert, you've been working a lot on this topic already since the 80s, I think. Yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, it goes back for me to the early days of my uh, old collective, the um, Foundation for the Advancements of Illegal Knowledge. And yeah, the beginning uh, really of my um, career, if you like, as a media theorist. A name that wasn't really mentioned as of yet is, of course, uh, Elias Canetti and his book Crowds and Power. For me, the list and the database a term that has also not been mentioned yet, uh, they are very powerful imaginary forms of uh, lists in the form of a human row. And so there is the human row, and this is becoming, if you like, a paper reality 
in which power starts to process the very uh, heterogeneous crowd which is going in all directions and is is also potentially very dangerous as uh, as Canetti describes it and it's very powerful if it organizes itself and finds a target so you can also read it the whole um, you know technology of the list as a way for for powers to um neutralize the potential danger that this um, mass that this uh, potential crowd always has the list is a, is a technology to uh, deal with that yes and i think that kenneth really shows in his book he already mentioned very shortly the nazis so he goes back into history to kind of find out where this whole listing and uh, listing through technology comes from and uh, he goes back to the 19th century and the uh, invention of punch card stuff like that and how it was uh, really brought to its um, extreme in in many senses by the nazis and we have a little clip also on that i think one of the things that's very important when we're talking about lists of people and we're talking about how they've operated with computer technologies is to think about the earliest forms of computer technologies and how it is that they have always been tied to census and registration practices and of course census and registration practices are fundamentally the ways that lists of people are culled and constituted so Herman Hollerith, the founder of IBM, actually invented his punch cards, tabulators, and sorters while he was working for the US Census Bureau in the 19th century. At the time, the US Census Bureau uh, was only able to sort populations by one or two demographic variables. Of course, they were doing everything was almost being done by hand and paper. It was impossible to sort by multiple variables. Um, Hollerith looked at this problem while working at the Census Bureau and determined and invented punch card sorters and tabulators, which ultimately are the earliest forms of computers. And so what we see here is that the history of computers has and is always tied to the registration of people and the tracking of people and the monitoring of people and the sorting of people into populations, whether they're risky populations, whether they're undesirable populations, whether they're other populations, whether they're ethnic populations, racial populations, uh, sexual populations, etc. The history of computers has always been tied to the sorting of populations. And of course, the outputs of those technological systems are lists. If we move from thinking about Hollerith in the 19th century and his use of punch cards, tabulators, and sorters, and de developing of them for census and registration in the United States, we can then see in the mid-20th century how that use of them for constituting populations of others, populations of risks or threats, gets taken to a much higher level by the Nazis, right, who were able to confront those who they deemed to be threats to the Volk, those who they deemed to be undesirable, those who they deemed to be non-Aryan, they could confront them as dehumanized elements through lists. And, and they did this, of course, using Hollerith technologies, punch cards, tabulators, and sorters, more advanced ones, but nonetheless, the, the same punch cards, tabulators, and sorters that were invented by Hollerith. So within the Nazi regime, lists at once made the cl a class of them, 
the others, those who were threats, real, and at the same time called into question who was to be included and excluded, who was Aryan or other, and all the while the list obfuscated the power relations behind the culling of them, behind the culling of undesirables, behind the culling of Jews. Moreover, the list also served as a key instrument of policing in these arrangements, one that was wielded in the hands of Gestapo and SS stormtroopers, reaching into and securing biopolitical milieus by rounding up listed and dehumanized elements. So the management and securing of the milieu in which elements, risky elements, threatening elements, other elements uh, happened in Nazi Germany was contingent on the extent of data that could be accessed on a just-in-time basis. So for the Nazis, that managerial revelation highlighted the severe limitation of relying only on yearly or bi-yearly census and registration data and the advantages of an ongoing daily registration system. And I think this is a very, very important point because in this way, during the Second World War, the Nazis actually glimpsed a future that would begin to take shape much more clearly but a half century later and now in our time a minute-by-minute, nanosecond-by-nanosecond accounting of the social, political, economic, and biological meanderings of the entire populace, enabling for the objectification of populations of them, for the listing of populations of them, calculated in the instant, and open to endless potentials for management and policing, right? And so we see now what the Nazis imagined, this second-by-second uh, accounting of human beings, we are now living in that, that time where lists of people, of others, of threats can be constituted in an instant with all of the data that is available. Okay, let me uh, give an example of this week. There was a, a tweet by Geert Wilders, which um, he posted probably late Sunday night or Monday morning, right after the um, constitutional elections uh, in Turkey. He threatened the Dutch-Turkish um, citizens living here in the Netherlands with both passports if they had voted uh, in favor of Erdogan, they would be out. Now, think of this as an example of sorting populations, right? Um, mobilizing the police, hiring the airplanes, and you will, you get this job done in a couple of days, right? The people are, are already identified and uh, they are out, right? And this, this is our, let's say, cybernetic uh, reality uh, we live in, in which these lists are playing a crucial role. Imagine if Wilders could get hold of the list of people uh, living here in the Netherlands who were voting in favor of Erdogan. Yeah, there you go. Do you think that would be possible, actually? The it technology is there. The databases are there. Everything is already there, right? This is the frightening uh, bit. The only uh, problem we have here is that Gilt Wilders uh, cannot uh, get hold of these databases as of yet. No, and of course this also applies to a lot that we've seen happening in the U.S. with uh, Donald Trump 
uh, talking about rounding up people, illegal immigrants or non-illegal immigrants, criminals. Well, there is a very real danger of uh, the so-called Muslim uh, database. Yes. This this danger also exists in France, uh, in Germany, in the Netherlands, of course, and... um, Explicitly, also in the in the U.S., because it has been uh, discussed as such. Yes, and then we also saw some kind of uh, backlash of people working in in the tech industry saying either I will not cooperate or the head of the IBM corporation actually saying uh, I offer my services to you, Mr. President-elect. So that caused quite a stir, I, I guess. On the other hand, there's uh, Peter Thiel as well, right? And he has a a lot of uh, very, very powerful uh, corporations um, uh, that uh, he uh, owns and steers that, uh, you know, can be used overnight to accomplish this job. And Peter Thiel is close to the White House. Yeah, he's a a presidential advisor. So, again, these uh, things that uh, Kenneth Werbin talks about here... Uh, they can uh, be, uh, you know, utilized and executed uh, overnight. So, Geert, what do you think? Because in November, December, there was a pledge that was uh, posted online and which was signed by a lot of people working in the tech industry. And it's called uh, neveragain.tech. So you can find it online under that name. And it's really about people saying, I will not cooperate uh, when it comes to making databases like this or lists of people? Yeah, it's a good uh, first step, of course, um, to organize this type of uh, high-level uh, civil obedience is very important. However, uh, we need to spread this awareness, which also is, in my view, quite fundamental, and it um, really takes a few uh, yeah, switches in your head when you s- suddenly start to look in a different way. For instance, at databases, uh, and so many millions of people on a daily basis you know, work with databases. Um, of course, uh, billions are directly connected and contribute to these databases. So it asks also a fundamental rethink of how we look at computers, uh, and not just online, uh, because we, we, we can make a distinction here between online and offline, and it's quite tempting to say it is the online connection, uh, the, the possibility to connect the different databases with each other that is you know, the most mm-hmm. dangerous aspect of it all, right? Yeah. Uh, but Kenneth, and you know, um, with him many others, are emphasizing that there's an, a layer, a much more important layer underneath. The online uh, connecting yeah, is, is only the last step. Yes, so it's, it's actually uh, much bigger and broader than that. And it's also much bigger and broader than just people working in tech. That's what I kind of hear you saying as well. That it's not just people who are programmers or designers and who might be able to develop such a database who should pledge never again, but it's... Well, uh, I'm, I'm proud of the Netherlands, you know, that we have come very far in this debate. 
uh, in my preface to the uh, book, I, I reference the Volkstelling, uh, the census of um, 1971 as a pivotal moment in, in the history of the Netherlands, looking at uh, this uh, aspect, but also looking at the past. This is playing an important role. Uh, in Germany, of course, it was the census of 1984, uh, which is uh, still in the minds of a lot of people where uh, an effective uh, resistance was organized. These days, it is, of course, the organized resistance from outside against election computers, right? Yes. And uh, this is so important that uh, the struggle, uh, the uh, resistance against this mad idea exactly comes from computer hackers, right? Mm -hmm. It's not coming from ordinary people. Of course, a lot of people uh, can um, be suspicious about it, but the fact that this movement you know, is organized by hackers uh, m makes me confident uh, that um, we can do it and, and, th and that we have to beat all those um, you know, silly and, and ignorant uh, bureaucrats and politicians who say, well, you know, we can uh, design a secure election um, computer counting system. But is it not too late? Because Kenneth also said when I talked to him, when it comes to these kind of pledges, the data is already out there. It's not a question of building new databases. It's, That's it's why I emphasized, uh, you know, that this aspect of, uh, yeah, of the online world, right? Because it's 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 there. It's on the internet that these already existing databases uh, get um, get connected, uh, and that's the uh, that's the frightening and that's the easy bit, because the data uh, do not have to be collected no. anymore. Uh, so that's why it's, uh, you know, um, yeah, code red. We should uh, really be alerted because it is no longer about the collection of data. Okay, let's uh, listen to another fragment about the web with Nikos. So it's important to keep in our mind that the list we operate in the online environment are there precisely to transform the, the information experience to um, indeed a very productive and not ambiguous one, a very clear process. And in that sense, uh, in this information capitalistic context of the classifiers, we cannot afford to explore, uh, we cannot afford to play and to feel part of an information experience that feels like as a game. We really need to hit, find, know what we want to find and find it quickly. And I think that there a certain perception of space is created. Um, this is happening because the list is really enforcing a very particular navigation within information. I think navigation is really interconnected with a sense of space as well. So look, uh, looking at the formal characteristic of all this online list of search results, for example, I see this list as an expression of a very flat uh, online experience. Our senses are somehow excluded within this list. So something should change, but is it possible? Lists date, date back to like ancient Egypt and Sumerian times, and they are like the first form of uh, knowledge production and collection and 
uh, transfer. So I guess we also can't really escape listing technology. Or could we uh, maybe arrange it differently or collect different things? What? Well, what a lot of people say is that we need to go through a catastrophe first in order to understand the true uh, destructive elements, the the real nature uh, of this um, technology. And um, there are ways, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say to regulate uh, this, but uh, let's uh, put it in different terms. Let's uh, t talk about, you know, taming uh, the, the technology, working through it on a very basic level, for instance, to make it uh, really much more difficult to connect one database with another. Uh, these days, uh, companies like Google and Facebook, <laughs> this is precisely, uh, you know, why they make so much money, because it's so easy to, to put all these um, so-called big data together. So there is a way, um, and I'm always using the term here, to dismantle this uh, apparatus, right? And if you dismantle it, uh, you know that it's still there, right? And uh, there are treaties uh, that have been uh, agreed on. Uh, in terms of uh, you know the destructive nature of um, nuclear war, uh, of chemical warfare, and yes, maybe uh, we come very close in this 21st century that we will have to uh, design uh, new treaties for the cyber warfare in which we have to include not just uh, cyber weapons. Uh, but maybe extend this definition to uh, databases as such. But then maybe we need to uh, not use the word cyber anymore. I, I, I read that in an article somewhere because it, when you say, you know, treaties against cyber weapons, it, it sounds like basically Russian hackers putting viruses in your, in your laptop. So maybe we need to emphasize the fact that, that this... Uh, flow of data is a flow of data which, uh, you know, you can't pin it down and we should be able to pin it down. It's just a thought. Yeah, I understand because uh, there is a danger that the, um, the enemy is projected onto some other. Huh? But yes. this is, of course, the problem. Computers and databases are omnipresent. And um, it's uh, especially Western societies that are, in fact, most advanced uh, when it comes to uh, these uh, technologies. And my friends in Southern Europe and elsewhere always remind me that these kind of very evil Nazi technologies uh, never work in uh, countries. Uh, where uh, not much works and everyone uh, ha finds a way uh, to uh, uh, yeah to manipulate uh, the the database uh, so we also have to yeah. uh, be careful a little bit uh, that this is not uh, some kind of 
you know, um, Protestant dream of, uh, yes. of, a, of a clean and well-functioning society. Nonetheless, these are apparatuses uh, the, of capturing. Uh, mm -hmm. And this capturing is happening in, in discriminatory. And uh, this is happening even without people noticing. Uh, so the, yes. the production of these databases, maybe there's a human element involved in it, but we know that uh, more and more this is done by um, the machines themselves. Yeah, so I guess we need policies on, on a higher level, maybe EU or whatever, but we also need awareness by individuals handling databases or going online or leaving data about themselves. And I like what you say about uh, people in, in uh, non-Northern, Western countries maybe thinking of, uh, about this in, in, in a different way because Nikos, uh, I already said, I, I talked to him while he is in Athens and he's from Greece. He also uh, mentioned something like this as a, as a way to oppose uh, list technologies and, and databases. Let's say uh, my social media profile is a, is a list of many lists, actually, of different things, of friends, of, of all the things we know. And, and let's say that we are also in this kind of post-anonymity, uh, I don't know, era where, of course, I'm not trying to defend anonymity in the, in the, in the old school sense. But the way I try to deal with these lists that are embedded with in Facebook, for example, uh, for me, it's a sort of very performative practice all these years because it really forms also my research through lists, uh, with lists. In simple terms, I really try. I really try to avoid the list. You know, I really try to change my username. I really try not to list the information. So I think ambiguity in that sense, as a, there is a lot of space for that, and it also expands the space of who I can be. So I don't know. I use a profile picture of a person who I found online, and it looks like me. Some someone could think it's me. Of course, this goes a lot again to this post-anonymity thing. I said that yeah, I'm not trying to fool my peers. You know. But of course, uh, feeding this system uh, and this list that describe me and construct me with ambiguity for me is important. This is kind of a strategy of obfuscation, as, as it's called. Yeah, and um, it's also discussed as uh, an awareness of, um, you know, uh, parallel identities. The fact that you need to start to separate instead of converge. So, yes, the idea of the second life, third life, fourth life, you know, it's not such a bad idea after all. And, um, yeah, maybe we come to rethink uh, some of the, you know, what we now consider very naive forms of early Internet culture, counter cyber culture that was celebrating the multiplicity of identities yeah? and um, you know maybe this was after all you know a late anti-fascist uh, you know response to an, uh, an earlier uh, wisdom of the uh, uh, founding generation of the early internet users uh, that yes this one identity that uh, mark zuckerberg always uh, you know pro promotes and real polices identity. yeah the real identity you know is um, is our main trap uh, as we speak okay i want to close off with uh, kenneth who also 
thought about what we can do to oppose these technologies. And um, he talks about, uh, Geertje mentioned, mentioned uh, dismantling uh, these lists. Uh, Nikos uh, emphasizes ambiguity. Kenneth talks about cracking open the list. So uh, we need to find out the criteria of uh, listing and then in, in that way we can hopefully not become one of the listed. The list in many ways becomes a fetishized object. It obscures and masks the criteria by which it's culled and who actually culls it. And that's why it's very, very important to crack open lists, to see what the criteria for inclusion and exclusion are, to investigate who it is that's culled them and how it is that they've been culled. In current context, the way that lists are, uh, are being utilized or might be utilized in this context of power, the way I'm describing it, we only need to look at the immigration and travel bans that have been discussed in the U.S. and that our policies are being derived in the U.S., the way that undocumented peoples might be listed, the ways that illegal immigrants uh, will be listed, the ways that criminal aliens will be listed for deportation. I think this example of criminal aliens and constituting a list of criminal aliens is a really good example. What constitutes criminality? Who decides on who's a criminal? And who, who decides who can be put onto a list of criminal aliens? What are the criteria for inclusion on such lists? So in fact, in February of 2017, the Department of Homeland Security uh, put out uh, uh, the criteria for priorities for deportation. Not so simple to find, um, and I imagine that as time goes on, it will become more and more difficult to find within the entropy of the Internet. But for the moment, what we see of those criteria of the definition of criminality, there's two criteria that are very, very troublesome and worrying for how people can be placed on a list of criminal aliens. The first would be a B, which is people who have been charged with any criminal offense that has not been resolved. So merely being charged can place a person on a list and have them constituted as a criminal alien for deportation. And the last criteria that's very problematic is G, in the judgment of an immigration officer otherwise pose a risk to public safety or national security. So ultimately the decision on who will be placed on these lists can be just ultimately with the immigration officer themselves who can just look at a person and decide that they're posing a risk and can place them on this very, very powerful list, this list that can have ultimately life-changing consequences for people. So from an ethical and social justice standpoint, it is critical that we look at the criteria for inclusion and exclusion on lists. It's something that really needs to be cracked open when we're thinking about lists of people and how they're used in power. Well, I guess the takeaway message is we might all end up on a list one day and we should know how it happens and why it happens. And you have some closing remarks? Well, I, I only hope that this is the beginning of a, um, a new uh, awareness um, because we've now really passed the point where you know we need to be introduced to the computer, to the database, to the internet. We're all in it. Yeah, I, I myself, I'm a bit surprised how few people are working on this topic and have basic awareness of it. So, yeah, with this publication and uh, the long form, uh, we hope at the uh, Institute of Network Cultures to um, 
you know, make a change and uh, and really uh, we call on everyone who is uh, uh, working on similar issues uh, to contact us and uh, uh, you know work with us because um, these are somewhat invisible topics that we're dealing with, right? So people know about it, but they can't really pinpoint what mm -hmm. what exactly it is. So what we also need to do, we need to you know, uh, invent a, a language uh, to to talk about this, to make the lists visible. Well, hopefully this podcast is, uh, is another step in that direction. Um, please go to our website, networkcultures.org, where you can download the book by Kenneth Werben for free in PDF or EPUB. You can also order a copy which is print on demand from there. So networkcultures.org slash Long form, you can find the effect of the list, the essay by Nikos Vyatsis. Then all that remains is to thank these both authors for their contributions and talking to me on Skype. Thank you, Geert, for joining me in the studio. And of course, thanks to Henry Warwick for our tunes. <laughs>